Hey, thanks, Jared, for reading that. Thanks, uh, Ben, for leading us this morning. It's good to be gathered here this morning and worship. Welcome to Providence Church. My name is Jared, and um, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, we're going through the book of Joel, which is about locusts, which is kind of strange. But um, it's been a fun journey so far. You may remember back to the first week that... Um, uh, we talked about Joel chapter 1, and Andrew posed the question, um, what do you do when things go bad? You remember that question? Remember he asked us, what do you do when, when things kind of take a turn for the worse? When, thing, when life feels like it's not playing fair, what do you do when things go bad? Now, when I walked in here, judging by the smiling faces that I saw and the energetic conversation that was around, this question almost seems irrelevant. Like, what could really be going wrong? But if any of you have taken a, a chance to sit down with someone and dive deep into someone's soul, ask them hard questions, or maybe if some of you have, have looked deep down inside your own soul this week, I know I've done both of those things you find out that there's a little bit more going on than our happy conversations. There's quite a few of us that are walking in here who are struggling right now who are, or who are recently uh, struggling. There's kind of a, a dark cloud that's hanging over some of us. Now, Andrew's question was, what do we do? What do you do when things go bad? But in Joel, this this section that we read today starts to take a little bit of a shift in another direction. And today, what this passage is going to answer is a different question. It's going to answer, what does God do when things go bad for us? How does God act? You see, this whole passage is about restoring what was lost, restoring what we feel like is wasted, restoring uh, mistakes, restoring pain, restoring what we feel like is failures. In one of the verses that Jerry just read in Joel 2.25, it says, God says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And as God is looking in on our situations today, he is looking down on us and he's saying, I want to restore that part of you that is hurting, that feels like it's wasted. So as we sit here in our, some of us sit here in our chaos this morning, um, I think we need to know that, that God cares for us, that he moves toward us, that God actually is answering our prayers. He hears them and he passionately and, and protectively moves to action in our chaos in order to restore us in a way that we can't do ourselves. God is for us. Now, while the Israelites had these locust years that they needed to be restored, um, we kind of have our own version of locust years. I read a pastor and author, Colin Smith, kind of uh, listed some things out, and I kind of adapted from his list, and he, he, he identified some locust years that we could have. For some of you, your locust years may be loveless years. Maybe you are in a strained marriage that's been that way for years. Maybe you're recently coming off a breakup or a divorce. Or maybe some of you uh, seem to be waiting forever and ever and ever in singleness. They're loveless years. For some of you, your locust years may be painful years. You may have lost someone recently 
And now you're trying to reorient, what am I going to do with my life now that it's kind of changed direction? Some of you, the, the painful years may be chronic pain, where you have a diagnosis, um, or maybe you have a, 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 a mental uh, illness, like depression, that seems to stick with you. There's physical pain or mental pain that's there every day, day in and day out, and you don't know what to do with it. It seems like you can't escape from it. For some of you, these locust years may be rebellious years. You feel like you've walked from God, you've strayed from God, and you've walked away, and it feels like you've created a lot of destruction in your life, and now you don't know what to do, where you can go. Could anything be okay again? And for some of you, uh, your locust years may be, uh, they may be fruitless years, that you had an idea of what you wanted to do with your life. You were going to be successful. You were going to go up and to the right. You were going to climb the corporate ladder. You were going to make a lot of money, and you are going to have the house that you wanted. But for some reason, you find yourself in a dead-end job, or you're just not making the money that you want, or you're unemployed. Or maybe you dropped out of school, and now you don't know what to do. Some of you have had spiritually fruitless years. You feel like, man, God, what's the deal? I've been investing in people. I've been volunteering. And I just see no fruit from this. Like, what is up with these years? And God, in our passage today, is proclaiming to do the impossible. Those painful moments or months or years that we've had, he's claiming to actually restore those to us. And so today, we're going to look at how God can do this in a way that only he can do it. And it's going to be a call to trust and believe deeply in the restoring work of God. And to believe in that right now. So as we look at this restoration, we're going to see three things that kind of happen in this passage. It comes in three chunks. The first chunk is where God moves toward us in restoration. And in the second chunk, we're going to see how we have an obligation to believe in his uh, restoration. And then finally, we're going to see how God actually fulfills it, what he actually does, what what we can expect. And so in the first section, I want to read the first couple verses and look how God moves toward us in his restoration. Okay, let's look at Joel 2, 18 and 19, the first two verses. It says in Joel 2, 18 and 19, Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. Now, before we explain this passage and kind of look at it in depth, man, I just want to pause because my heart needs to hear, and I think that a lot of your hearts in here need to hear that God actually cares about us. In our place, wherever we're at right now, he actually moves toward us. He wants to come to the rescue. He wants to move to action in our locust years, whatever the situation is. Let that be a a foundation as we move forward, just to consider that. So the context of this verse is, is rooted in a, in a massive change of direction in the book of Joel. So these verses, if you would imagine a teeter-totter, the whole first half of it is this destruction. This is kind of where it starts to tip the other direction. So you remember in chapter 1 and most of chapter 2 that we've been talking about, it's just like terrible. There's destruction everywhere. These weird, odd, like destroying locusts are coming. They're destroying crops. They're destroying land. These Israelites, their livelihood was taken from them. Everything was just gone. They were on the verge of starvation. There was famine in the land. And 
Last week, Andrew came to us and preached a section where God's, God called his people to heart-level repentance. He said, okay, I sent these locusts. This is a judgment on you for what's happening. But now, God says, I want you to turn back to me and turn back to me with all your heart. And between Andrew's section and these verses that we're reading today, we can imply that these people did repent and turn back to God because God starts moving toward them in restoration in the middle of their chaos. He heard their cry, his disciplined work, and this heartbroken father, whose heart had been beating for these people who were in destruction, he starts coming to the rescue. And in verse 18, we kind of see how this scene plays out. It says that he's jealous for the land. And it says that he has pity on his people. Now, when we think of jealousy, a lot of times our, our, our mind kind of goes into weird places because we think of like jealous high school girlfriends or boyfriends that get all weird and possessive and it's just an ugly thing. But God's jealousy is something entirely different because his people and us, we belong to him. He wants them. He cares for them. He looks down on Israel and he has compassion and he wants to intervene. His passion for his relationship with his people is overflowing. And many times I need to be reminded of this. And I think we need to be reminded of this, that God is actually jealous for us. That he's jealous for our hearts. He desperately wants us. He'll do anything to get us and to come to the rescue. So, a little over a year ago, um, I took my family to this Easter egg hunt, okay? Now, I got three little kiddos, and my oldest one at the time was three years old. His name is Nash. We went to this Easter egg hunt, and it was one of those things where they had the helicopter drop the eggs down. Have you heard of this before? I don't know. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I don't know why, what the secret is with eggs dropping from a helicopter, but if apparently it gets a lot of people out because there were 20,000 eggs, I believe, that were dropped in this one field. And we were like, oh man, this is going to be amazing. We're going to make a big haul. It's going to be great. But when we got there, what we didn't realize is there were thousands of people there. So you look around, you're like, wow, we might not get as big a haul as we thought initially. But so we go to this Easter egg hunt and uh, and how it works is they roped off this huge field where they had these thousands of Easter eggs, and they divided kids up into groups so the little three-year-olds, like my son, wouldn't get run over by the fifth graders, okay? So they divided up into three sections, and I think the three through five-year-olds were in one section. They had it roped off, and then they had a rope that was like the starting gate that wouldn't let them go, and then they, were, they, they had an air horn, and they said, okay, when we blow this horn, we're going to drop this rope, and it's a free-for-all. So just go grab the things, go crazy. And so we're getting ready, and I'm looking around, and I'm like, man, we're behind like hundreds of kids. There's rows of kids in front of it, and my kid is like one foot nine inches tall. This is not going to work out very well. But anyway, so they blow this horn, they drop the rope, and, and my little dude is like kind of, kind of bumping into people and trying to get through, weaving through, and he's not getting anything. Like all the other kids are just devouring these eggs. And as he's moving forward, he's not actually getting closer to any eggs. They're actually getting farther away because kids are picking him up faster than he's actually walking forward. And so as I'm standing there as his dad, I look and about 60 feet in front of me is the end of the, the boundary where these eggs are. And I realize that my kid has no shot of getting any eggs unless I intervene. And so 
with my wife nudging a little bit, I realized it's time for dad to come to the rescue here. And so what I did is I come up behind him and I pick him up under his arms and I said, okay, it's time to go. And so I start running. My first step, I bump into a mom that's right next to me and I kind of look around, oh, whatever. I keep running a couple more steps and I literally hit a couple little kids that are waist high and I think one of them fell over. I quickly said sorry and tiptoed through these kids until I get to an open clearing and it's 20 feet to the end of the boundary and there is one No joke, out of 20,000, there's one egg left. And so I, with all my might, my sprinting power, I sprint over, I set the kid down, my my kid, down in front of this yellow egg, and and there's another kid that runs up at the same time, and I stare at him, and he looks up at me while my kid reaches down, and he gets the very last egg that is down on the ground. Now, if you get a dad on mission to bring joy to his kid, he will do whatever it takes out of jealousy for his own child. God is sweeping up a helpless Israel in this section, and he's moving toward them in restoration. And for us, there is no greater example of how this took place for us than when we were in a sinful, destructive state before Christ and God sent his son down, Jesus, to come live in our place, to come die in our place so that when we repented and we turned to him and we believed in him, that God could sweep us up into his arms and rescue us from the sin and destruction and be delivered into this lifestyle of restoration. But even now, even being in Christ, living in this sinful sinful world, we still find ourselves getting caught up in our sin, in the sin of the world, and getting caught up in these locust years, these loveless years, these painful years, these fruitless years, these rebellious years, these times of pain. But God continues to restore us as we turn to him. As we repent, he continues to rescue us as a father. And I want you to know that if you are in the middle of chaos or you are overwhelmed, you have a father who much like a jealous father at an Easter egg hunt who desperately wants his kid to be able to get an egg and to experience joy. You have a father who is coming after you, who's moving toward you, who's pursuing you in order to initiate this restoration process once again. And God will respond to you by answering your prayers. He will move toward you because he's jealous for you. He loves you. He's passionate for you and your heart and your soul. And in no way has he abandoned you in this stage. He's moving and fighting on your behalf to initiate restoration in your life. So how do we respond to this initiating work that God has, to him moving toward us. Well, the next section, we're going to be called to believe, okay? So we're going to look at the next verses, starting in verse 21. Here's what it says. These are the words that Joel is speaking before God was speaking. Now it's Joel. He says, Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. 
Fear not, you beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green. The tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. This is what God says. And the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locusts have eaten. Now what Joel is doing in this section is he's saying rejoice, fear not, rejoice, fear not. And then he's listing all these things as he's essentially singing this praise song to God. This praise song in, in, in relation to God's promise. Now this is a little bit odd because if you do a little bit more studying, you'll see as God speaks first and then Joel speaks and then God speaks, when God speaks on either side, either before or after this passage, God is saying, I will satisfy you. I shall fill your vats with oil. I, I will rescue you. And what God is speaking is he's speaking in future tense. He's looking at what he's about to do. And what I learned from a little bit of studying is that these prophets, even though Joel in this section is speaking in a present tense or a past tense of God has done this, he is doing that in, in a song, and praise song way of reflecting on what God is about to do. So you know what that means? That Joel is calling God's people and he's calling us here this morning to fear not and rejoice now, even before God's restoring work has taken place. Now, I didn't realize this until I started paying a little bit closer attention to this passage, but at first I was thinking, yeah, those locusts came and destroyed the the Israelites. Man, what was that, like five days long, like maybe three weeks long? Well, you read this, it talks about the years that the locusts have destroyed I heard people estimate maybe four years in a row these locusts just laid waste to everything. And finally, when they had, these Israelites had lived through this destruction, God promises to relent. But before it even happens, Joel calls them to rejoice. He calls them to fear not. Now, think about this for a second. Can you imagine the thought of doing this? Like, for, for four years, maybe for years straight, you've been plowing and planting and trying to cultivate these crops, hoping that something could come up when year after year, day after day, locusts just come in and destroy everything. It's completely gone. The people are on the verge of starvation for years. And in the middle of this, Joel is challenging them to believe God's restoration. That God's going to change everything. He's telling them, hey, if God said he was going to bring grain and he was going to bring oil and he was going to bring wine, if God says he's going to make the pastures green, if God says that he's going to restore the fields to them, if he's going to to get rid of the locusts and bring fruitful trees, even though you haven't seen any of that in years, still believe it. Fear not right now. Rejoice right now. There is, this is an extreme call to believe in God, to trust him. Because if God said he would do it, he'll do it. If God promised it in his word, it's as good as done because he promised it. Now, this is hard for some of us whose hearts are broken right now whose bank accounts are 
depleted right now. We're de- those of us who are dealing with a loss right now. For some of us who feel incredibly lonely and depressed right now. For those of you who are, who are overwhelmed by past guilt and mistakes and can't get them out of your head to do this right now. For those of you who feel like your lives, that you've kind of wasted your life away. For some of you who walk in here this morning and you just say, man, I just feel like I'm a failure. The call to rejoice and fear not is a difficult one, but it's a necessary one. And I don't know about you, but when chaos and turmoil hits, for me, rejoicing is the last thing that I think about doing. I resort to, to, to anxiety and, and worrying and, and fear. Man, I feel like I've become a professional at imagining worst-case scenarios and dwelling on them forever and ever. Anyone else been there before? When things go bad, I don't, I don't resort to... I don't resort to rejoicing and having no fear. A lot of times I'm resorting to worrying and sleepless nights. It happened to be once this week. And so this passage, as I've read it this week, it has just been a giant slap in the face. It's a wake-up call that no matter how hard it feels or what my natural reactions are, God is calling me and he's calling us to fight to believe in his restoration. Not just that it's a nice biblical idea that sounds good, but it's actually true in our hearts and we can believe it and live out from it. And that means that, that however bad your situation is, that, that God's grace is greater. And however hopeless your situation might feel, God's hope is actually greater. So would you lift your eyes to him this morning and expect restoration and rejoice? Would you no longer have fear and rejoice? You're not stuck in the place that you are so you can rejoice. God has not abandoned you so you can rejoice. Could we be a people who are confident in God's restoring work? But what exactly does this look like for restoration to happen? Uh, How is God exactly going to fulfill this? So let me read, reread a couple of the verses that we just read and read ahead a little bit. Starting back in verse 24, this is what it looks like for Israel. It said, the threshing floors shall be full of grain. This is how God is restoring them. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the the years that the swarming locust has eaten. And then in verse 26, God proclaims over them, you shall eat plenty and be satisfied. God was promising this physical restoration of this famine-stricken land. And instead of these locusts eating for the years that they had been eating, now God has promised, you're now going to be the ones eating my children. And you're going to eat and be satisfied satisfied. They were going to have so much in their possession, their God's abundance would meet their scarcity, and they would have their years restored to them. But as we assess our locust years, obviously, I don't think any of us in here are waiting for our vats to be filled up or our threshing floors to get full, right? 
So what exactly does this look like for us? What can we expect for God to do in these times? I think God fulfills our restoration in three ways from this passage. And the first one is to restore physical things. So that's what God did for Israel, right? He restored physical things, this physical blessing, back to them. Now, don't get worried. I'm not going to go on a health and wealth rant here. You know, you just believe in God a little bit. He's going to make you rich. He's going to give you everything you want. Like, that's not the idea, okay? However, God does sometimes restore physical things to us. Some of us have have, uh lost a job. We've been laid off or fired, and we didn't know what was coming next. We were in a place of, uh, of lostness, and God actually brought us another job. He provided a physical thing. For some of us, we've had a, a relationship, a dating relationship, and there's been a breakup, and it feels like the world is crumbling. We don't know what's going on, and God has actually come uh, on the backside of this, and he has provided a new relationship that was a God-ordained thing that was this restoration of a physical thing that we thought we had before, but he restored it to us. Sometimes, um, for some of us, we have got, been diagnosed with something a health diagnosis, and our health seemed lost. And through God, maybe through um, natural or supernatural means, he has restored healing to our body, and so we got our health back. He restores physical things at times. Now, there is another sense also that God can restore physical things by redeeming our perspective on them. Have you ever noticed that, that God can take away things from us to keep us from idolizing them. Let me explain this, if you can stick with me for a little bit. Now, if you're like me, you've maybe been dumped before, okay, in a relationship. That's me being honest here. So, and what happens, or what happened to me in the aftermath of that is you lose this relationship and you think you've lost all things because you had this relationship on the throne of your life. And what you realize in the aftermath is God allows you to see that you were idolizing this relationship, and you can take that person and that relationship off the throne, and he redeems himself and puts himself, you can put himself, him back on the throne, and in its place, you can put a relationship and, and a significant other, which is a good thing, back in its rightful place. He restores that back to the way it's supposed to be. This could work with the job as well. If you lost your job, feeling distraught, and in the pain of that, you realize that you were actually idolizing your career, the money that you could make, or the respect you get from your job. And when you lose that, God restores it back to its rightful place where he goes back on the throne. And you can realize that work is a good thing, and it's a thing to be stewarded, but not an ultimate thing. He can redeem our perspective through some of these painful years. So, the second way that we can be restored is by God removing shame from us, like it says in verse 26 and verse 27. Now, our default, when we do something wrong, when we sin, our default is to beat ourselves up for that. I remember when I uh, played basketball, uh, my coach had this phrase that he always kept coming back to, which was, next play. 
And he would say that when you would make a mistake. So when I would come down and I'd dribble the ball off my foot out of bounds, I'd be all sulking and sad, and I'd run back the other way, and he'd yell at me, next play! He tried to get my head back in the game. Because as I'd dribble the ball out of bounds or air ball a, a three or pass the ball to the other team, which happened quite frequently, actually, my coach would need to get my head back in the game because otherwise I wouldn't be able to play defense the next time down and I'd be out of it on offense the next time down. In, in a way, I believe that this is what shame does to us. When If you've been in a place where you've made a mistake or if you've sinned against someone or you've made a financial decision that you just can't get over because it seems to have ruined you financially or you've had a, a relationship that you feel like you've ruined and, and you're looking at all this, maybe you, at some point you have, you have hurt somebody or, or broken the law or, or whatever, you seem to, to, to put this in your head and dwell on it over and over and over, and you feel this sense of shame and guilt for what's going on. And when we dwell on these things and don't move past them, we are undermining the work that Jesus has done for us. And essentially, it's not believing the gospel. You see, Jesus did something about those mistakes that you've made. He endured shame on the cross so that he could take away our shame. He went to the cross to pay for the sins that you've committed against others and against him so that it would no longer be held against you. So you wouldn't live in that place because you have a new identity now. He has removed that from you. Romans 8.1 declares to us this morning, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Jesus here this morning, shame has no place because there's no condemnation for you. So stop listening to Satan's accusations. Start believing in Jesus' redeeming work. If God isn't beating you up over something you've done in the past, then we might as well go ahead and stop beating ourselves up as well. And could you trust Jesus fully this morning that he restores you by removing shame for us? That's the second way he can restore us. The third way that he restores is that he deepens our relationship with himself. So when things go bad, when life feels wasted, when it seems like the things that we usually cling to just get out of our grasp, what do we cling to? Well, hopefully, if we're in Christ, a lot of times we cling to God, right? In verse 27, it says, You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel and that I am the Lord your God and there is no one else. This is the anchor of the promise of restoration, that God is with us, that he's here. If you have trusted in Christ, Jesus has saved us and he's holding on to us and he will never let us go. His presence is with us and it is deepening. He's changing us and he wants us to experience a deeper and deeper communion with him. And when you walk through destruction or locust years, you begin to know God in a way that you couldn't have actually known him before. My wife is a nurse and uh, she's worked as a nurse for several years and she's told me over and over that when she runs into patients and takes care of patients who have um, very bad diagnoses, like they maybe don't have very much longer to live or they're living in extreme pain, she said, 
some of these patients who are Jesus followers in this situation, she said, man, the depth of the relationship they have with God is something that I can't seem to grasp onto. Like it's deeper than anything that I could achieve in my current circumstances. She said, their circumstances are so much worse, but their joy in God is so much greater. There's something about these times Jesus can restore these locust years by deepening our relationship with him and understanding that true satisfaction, true contentment is only found in him. And as we start understanding this, a lot of times, as we believe and understand that true satisfaction is found in him, that God will start unveiling some of the the times of these painful years, and we can look back and see how God was molding and shaping us the entire time, even through our pain, even through these locust years. And so could we be a people who actually turn to him and pray, and pray, God, man, I spent too many years far from you, too many years running from you, and could you make the destruction of these years, could, could you make my love for you deeper than it ever would have been without them? That's the prayer. Could you make my love for you deeper than it ever would have been without these years? You see, the pinnacle of restoration is actually relationship with God himself. And as we consider the promise of restoration, we can know that right now we can experience God. We can experience the promises of his restoration. And the gospel brings a taste of this. We can experience his blessings, but one day, <clears throat> the reality is, is there will be an actual complete restoration where there will be no more tears, there will be no more pain, and we will be able to be with him. And so Providence Church, as we consider this passage this morning, could we be a people who believe in his restoration now, who experience God now, but as an appetizer for the banquet that's coming one day, that we will be able to be with God in complete restoration and live with him in eternity. Providence, let's be a people who hope in restoration. Let me pray. God, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity uh, to be able to dwell on, think on your restoration, to be able to get outside of our own heads and and in light of our uh, pain, in light of our chaos, in light of our uh, locust years that we could consider how you can bring restoration to those things. God, I pray that many of us in here would begin to sense and understand and realize the restoration that you are initiating in us right now in this season. Could we be a people who believe in you, who trust in you, and, and believe in your restoration. And through this, could you deepen our relationship with you in a way that you wouldn't have or couldn't have otherwise, God? We pray all of this in your name. Amen.